I'm Kim Raycon, Marketing Associate for Harper Academic, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academic's podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Stephanie Powell Watts. In Stephanie Powell Watts's debut novel, No One is Coming to Save Us, J.J. Ferguson returns home to Pinewood, North Carolina, to find everything changed as much as he has. The furniture plants, once the lifeblood of the town, are shuttered. Ava, the high school sweetheart he's returned to win back, is desperate for a baby and battling infertility, while married to Henry, a man broken by the town's industrial demise. Sylvia, Ava's mother, cares and meddles in the lives of those around her as she tries to fill the void of her absent son. Don, Sylvia's unworthy husband, doesn't stop hanging around. JJ's return means more than building a mansion on top of Brushy Mountain Road, where he can look down on the lives of all of Pinewood. For Ava and her family, JJ's wealth in return prompts a reckoning. What have they all done with the cards they've been dealt? Should they want, do they deserve, more? If they do, how in the world are they supposed to go about getting it? And if they don't, how can they live with what they have? No One is Coming to Save Us is an arresting, unmissable novel about an extended African-American family and their colliding visions of the American dream. It's a story of resilience in the face of the at times unrelenting nature of life and the universally understood determination to hang on if no one comes and do whatever necessary to save oneself. No One is Coming to Save Us is available now in hardcover from our imprint Echo. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You have published previously a short story collection called We Are Taking Only What We Need. Was it a challenge or was it freeing to switch form from the short story to the novel? Um, I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, I have, have always written short stories since I was a kid, you know, I've always done little stories, and uh, most of my career I've written short, you know, I've done short stories, and so I love the form, um, and it, and breaking out of that form, because it's, it's what I've known, and it's what I trained for in graduate school, mm-hmm. and the whole nine yards, uh, but breaking out of that form was, was really a challenge. But I also found a lot that, that I love about the novel structure. Um, you know, I mean, thinking about this, I've been thinking about this a lot, the, the short story and the, and the novel, and I was reminded of something that I read about Kurt Vonnegut, mm-hmm. and he was saying that, um, that a short story, the reader should be able to anticipate the ending, so that if a cockroach comes and eats the last couple pages, <laughs> you know, that the reader should should know what's going to happen with that character mm-hmm. and what that character is going to do. And um, and I think he said that, you know, if a short story is, is working, that that happens. And I think, that's, I think that's really true. I don't know if that's always true about the novel, and I don't think it's because it's not as 
as tightly wound or not because it's not as structured as much. I don't think that's it. I think it's a little bit of sleight of hand that happens with the multiple stories, the, the many um, avenues you go down, <laughs> that kind of thing in the novel. And so I think it does often come as kind of a, an interesting or, um, or something unpredicted, some kind of surprise for you. And that, that at least has been my experience um, with, the, with the two um, forms. So one of the many moments that I loved in No One Is Coming to Save Us comes early on when you start describing where we are in this world, in Pinewood, North Carolina. And you talk about um, a town that has fallen on pretty hard times because its furniture plants have closed down. And one of the things that you, that you say in the, in the opening chapter is, here's a math problem for you. How many casinos does it take to make a town? Are you calculating? Got it? No, sorry, that's a trick question. No number of casinos make a town. But if you want a stopover place, a place to throw your balled up trash out the window as you float by in your car, you just need one good casino. And then the passage goes on to talk about how, how the town would like that kind of rescuing, uh, rescuing force. Um, what can you tell us about Pinewood, North Carolina? How does this town fit the characters that you have populated it with? Uh, I really wanted the town to be, um, to be present and the, this area of the country to be present in, um, in the novel. This is, not, this is a fictional town, but it's very much situated in the foothills of North Carolina, and this is an area that in, um, in actual life has, has seen um, these um, furniture, the whole furniture industry really be turned over on its head, and so much of what was, was the livelihood of the people who lived here has, uh, has all but disappeared. Mm -hmm. And this is a story that we see repeated all over the country, but just insert another industry. Yeah, we're, we're kind of familiar with that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so, uh, you know, I live in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and so that's another, that's another area, of course, that has seen the end of an industry, a steel industry, of course, in that, in that situation. And so, so you have a, a, a town that has seen all of these huge changes, and it feels, it, these cha changes always feel, huge changes always feel like that they just came. But of course they've been marching along for years, but you either just um, ignore that or uh, you think, oh, well, that's just an anomaly or, you know, until finally there's a critical mass of change and you're like, oh my goodness, what has happened? What's mm -hmm. happened to me? What's happened to the town? And so I wanted that sort of feeling to, um, that kind of snowballing effect uh, to be happening to the town and happening to the characters at the same time, so that what they're feeling and their their angst and their longings and the, the desires of their hearts are um, mirroring what's happening with the town. Yeah, and it's it's emotionally, I think, a little bit kind of kind of heavy in terms of story, um, because throughout the novel, to me as a reader anyway, it seemed that it was pretty emphatic that nobody is going to get what they want. And you have a you have a myriad of characters and they all seem to be pretty unhappy but also pretty resilient. And one of the things that I really liked about it was this this idea of this resiliency that no matter how bad things got, no matter how exhausted people were, 
everybody kept going. And in an interview with Shelf Awareness that you did recently, you said that religious people understand the power of an insistent idea. And for me, each character's sort of embedded resiliency became this this kind of insistent idea. Mm-hmm. So why was that sense of resiliency so important to you? Well, I, I do think that when, um, when pe- people have to figure out uh, what they need and what they want in this life and uh, what they have access to, mm-hmm. and those are really crucial questions in, in your life. And so sometimes you have to scale back what it is you think that you have access to. Um, And, you know, those are adjustments that sometimes we have to make. And you can either make those adjustments or you can stay in stasis. And and sometimes I think that that's what I was trying to get at with the title. Mm -hmm. It's a great title, by the way. We are all pretty pretty much agreed that this is one of the best (laughs) titles we have ever seen. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) You know, I'm worried about it being a little bit um, bleak. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not necessarily optimistic, but yeah. Yeah, so, well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I, I just wanted to, I wanted to say that sometimes you're in that space, you know, where you feel like I can, um, I can kind of live in this despair. And, uh, and if you need to for a while, mm-hmm. everybody does. When you have, when you suffered, you need to take a moment and live in the despair um, but then, once you've done that, then what do you do? Once you've decided, okay, nobody's coming, then what do you do? And that's where, um, I mean, I think that it's often viewed as, as resilience, and it is resilient, but it's also a kind of um, um, making, a, making a choice that is either I stay here and, and kind of die in this space, mm-hmm. or I move forward in some, in some way. Um, and so it's kind of, uh, it's, it's the choice is made for you unless the choice is, is death. Mm-hmm. And near the end of the novel, Sylvia tells JJ the story of her mother and the Blackberry Pie dinner episode. Mm-hmm. And Sylvia talks of her mother's shame in not having enough for her children. And then Sylvia goes on to tell JJ that she herself is ashamed. A lot of characters also don't have enough or have very meager meager things that they can offer to other people. So do you think this sense of shame carries over to, to other characters in the novel? I do. I, I think that, that shame is, um, is a big part of, uh, of what's fueling many of the characters. I mean, and, um, and I'm, us- I'm using shame in a, in, a, um, in, a, in a broader way, I mean, in a, in a, bigger, in a bigger way, I think. And, and also, shame is to me, this, this moment when you um, try to take control, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. especially um, when you try to take control of things that you really can't take control of. So the only thing you can do is to pull it back in on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what, that's what she ends up, that's what she ends up doing. And I mean, she, obviously, um, most parents want the best for their children and wish they had a lot of money to shower on them and give them lots of material things. And, and obviously that's what Sylvia wants. And I hope that's what most parents, what good parents want for their, for their children. But she also feels a, um, a, a, a lot, another, other kinds of lacks, you know, yeah. was unable to provide for her children because she didn't have them herself. And these, this sort of, of, um, of strong, kind of psychological foundation that 
that so she could have said to them, I can teach you how to um, make it in the world and how to understand the world and navigate well because you will see me doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and she feels uh, shame because she hasn't, she feels like she hasn't been able to do that herself, so certainly she can't pass it on. And um, so there are a lot of the characters are, are feeling are feeling different versions of this of this shameful um, feeling, but it's it's really just this this moment of uh, I understand what has happened to me, and I understand something, and in particular about the past, and I know I can't do anything with it. And it's also a kind of precipice moment, mm-hmm. and you can you know stay in that shame, um, or you can decide really. There was very little I could do about that, and that, but I can do something today. Yeah, and there's also a tension that seems to arise in the novel between the ideas of staying and living. Mm-hmm. And at one point, the narrator says, so many black people stay somewhere. Where do you stay, they'd say. I stay with my friend, I stay with my mother. Don't you live anywhere? And then a little bit later, towards the end of the novel, Ava herself is kind of having this this reckoning, and and she she thinks to herself, mostly she knew that the scared shitless keep moving. To dwell is to die. Where do you stay, Ava? Is there somewhere, anywhere that you live? So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this difference between staying and living, and then also, do you think any of these characters get a chance to live by the end? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, there's a there there's a that that um, tension between those two ways of talking about the place where you um, sleep. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah and living and it's I've, I've always been interested in that and I've heard uh, many people of color particularly African Americans mm-hmm. use use that phrase you know I, I stay here you know mm-hmm. um, the idea that uh, in in that idea I think embedded in it is this impermanence yeah um, and um, and this idea that it's not your home mm-hmm. and so I've, I'm really interested I was I'm really interested in that and of um I think that the characters do live, I think that they are, and they are trying to live, they're struggling mightily to live, but I think they do, I think that that um, that this moment in their lives, they are really trying to get out of, out of that rut, you know, yeah. they're working mightily because they see, they recognize in themselves that there's some, this hurdle that they that they have to get over and if they can't do it then they're then they're going to be stuck there and so but i think in that process um that they do manage to find uh, community and family and some joy even in even in that process even in those moments they do um but i i think so much about uh, my my grandmother and her generation and and my grandmother would be older than Sylvia but I, she reminds me so much of of her mm-hmm. you know, this this idea there are some things that I just cannot get over from the past mm-hmm. uh, some things that have a hold on me that you know have a, a hand on my shoulder all the time mm-hmm. but uh, in order to to provide any kind of world for my children, for my grandchildren, and ultimately for, with my grandmother, grandmother her great-grandchildren, um, I have to keep moving. You know, um, I, can't, I can't be in that space. 
And so I feel like that they, um, that especially Sylvia's generation, they're always torn. I mean, whether it's from the ghost of Jim Crow or whether, um, whether it's from personal failings or whether it's, it's because of they can't fulfill or, or even help to fulfill the desires of their children. And whether those kinds, of, all those kinds of things are pulling on them, but they they have to figure out how to move forward. Yeah, there's there's a there's a living through the lack of neatness. A lack of lack of neatness. Yeah, yeah. I, I and that was one of the things that I really liked about the novel as a whole is that that none of these characters really sort of had things tied for tied in a bow for them at, yeah. at the end. They still had stuff to work through. Yes, and I, I, I feel I felt like that that to do justice to their experience, um, it wouldn't be um, it wouldn't be right. I wanted to give them a moment of brightness because I feel like that even that in virtually any situation that certainly we could think of some that it would not be true, but in virtually in every situation there are those moments mm-hmm. um, that or you feel like that there is there's something to hold on to. Yeah. And so I wanted to give them that, but I didn't I didn't want to solve their their lives because that that doesn't happen unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's you wanted to give them the idea of the green light at the end of the dock. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, I have one more question for you and it, it's a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcast. Since this is a podcast designed primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh my goodness. You know, I have so many. You can pick. You can pick more than one. It's fine. Um, well, one of my favorites is um, was a man named Roy Weaver. Is a man named uh, Roy Weaver. He was so enthusiastic and passionate about history, and you know, it seems like when he was in front of the classroom that he was just finding out this this stuff himself. You know, <laughs> okay. and he was, you know, and I remember he's talking about Abraham Lincoln. And he's getting all welled up about it. And I'm thinking, did you just find out that things didn't go well with Abe? You know, yeah. but, he's, but he's always he was always just there and with it, and so joyful. And so I, I love that about him. I, I still love that about him. He's, he writes um, histories, and um, and he's retired now, but he's a lovely, wonderful teacher. I mean, I have a number of writing teachers that. Um, that I think are fantastic, but you know, I think you know, Flannery O'Connor talks about childhood, and you know, says if you have a childhood, you have material for the rest of your life. And uh, you know, I feel I absolutely feel like that's true. And there's so many people in my childhood that I feel like um, have made such huge impressions, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and not so much necessarily for what they taught, or but for how they did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and and their and and just their great kindness in doing it you know yeah um so um so I've got many. That's, that's excellent. That's, that is excellent. Well, Stephanie, it was so great to talk to you again. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It was really fun. Oh, you're welcome, Stephanie. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye. bye.